You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. Let's get into it. It's been a week and a half since Election Day, and we now know who's running Congress. The GOP took the House, and the Democrats took the Senate, and both hold their respective chambers by a very slim majority. So where does that leave the government? We unpack it. Plus, reports indicate the self-proclaimed Chief Twit has driven away hundreds of his own employees. And Ticketmaster faces antitrust scrutiny after a mad dash to buy Taylor Swift tickets broke the platform. Let's bring in our guests. Wendy Benjaminson is the Deputy Managing Editor of U.S. Government at Bloomberg News. Wendy, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Shane Harris covers national security for The Washington Post. Shane, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jen. And Susan Page is the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Her latest book is Madam Speaker, a biography of Nancy Pelosi. Susan, great to have you. Hey, Jen. It's great to be with you. So it's been 10 days since Election Day, and we now know what the next Congress will look like. As I said, Republicans took the House this week, but with a very slim majority. With that disclaimer that a handful of seats still haven't been called. Wendy, how did the House shake out? It's just fascinating. Um, right now, I think it's a 212 to 218. The Republicans have the needed 218 to claim the majority. But with a couple of races left to call, um, you know, Democrats, they might increase their majority a little bit. Republicans might increase theirs a little. But this is a squeaker. And that means that Kevin McCarthy, should he become speaker or whoever the speaker is, has a rest of right-wing caucus that he will have to um, you know, pander to a little bit in order to keep Republicans together to block Biden's agenda. And we saw a little bit of it yesterday when he acceded to Marjorie Taylor Greene's demands that the House investigate the quote-unquote political persecution of people who were inside the Capitol on January 6th. I don't think Kevin McCarthy would have done that if he wasn't being pressured from the right. Susan, how are you reading the current balance in the GOP, specifically in the House, and what this means for how they move forward with their own agenda and really what's going to take priority in that agenda? Yeah, I think we're going to see real conflict over what direction House Republicans should take. And, you know, they've got no room to maneuver. As as Wendy said, they're now up to 218. That gives them a majority, a majority of one, if that's where they stay. We think they're going to end up at about 222, which would be the same number that Nancy Pelosi had for her Democratic majority for the past two years. But Nancy Pelosi, one of the most skilled legislative tacticians of modern times, managed to push through legislation despite the narrowness of that margin. But the Republican caucus is more divided. It's more fractious. Uh, and Kevin McCarthy, or whoever becomes the speaker, is less tested as a leader. So I think it's unlikely that Republicans will be able to get through big pieces of legislation. Uh, what they will be able to do, if they choose, is to investigate. Well, and Shane, what does that mean for any bipartisan action in the House? I think it means it's, it's the, the prospects are dim, <laughs> and that might be putting it a little bit, a bit generously, uh, you know. And I think that uh, the prospects for investigations maybe they were always going to be partisan investigations here, and it, ones targeting the Biden administration as well. But there's probably more incentive, I would suspect, now for House Republicans, and that legislation is not really going to be moving forward. And remember, too, with the, you know Democrats controlling the House, if the Republicans manage to pass you know divisive or controversial legislation. 
legislation, the Democrats don't necessarily need to bring it up for a vote in the Senate. Uh, so, so I think you're you're seeing a recipe here for pretty much bipartisan gridlock. Well, and, and just to clarify, you meant if Democrats with Democrats holding the Senate, not not yeah, the sorry, House. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Exactly. I know a lot a lot's changed in the in the last couple of weeks. No no worries. I'm curious what all this means for President Biden's agenda, though, in the year ahead, Wendy. Well, it it really means that he can, because he has the Senate, or the Democrats have the Senate, he can hold off what some might consider the worst excesses of House Republicans, but he can't get anything done because the House will never pass, um, you know, well, highly unlikely that they will pass any legislation that Biden favors. Um, and so really, it's kind of, it's going to be sort of gridlock, which doesn't position either side well for 2024, which is really, you know, we're going to have about a week of governing here, and then we'll go back into campaign mode pretty soon. Um, but it really doesn't bode well for anything getting getting done at all. We got this message from John, who writes, here we go, Republican grievance for the next two years in the House. They simply don't know how to govern, but they do know how to complain and create dog and pony shows. Susan, I'm curious to hear from you as we think about what officials ran on leading up to the election, what they said they wanted to focus on, and what we're starting to see in these early days. New Congress doesn't actually start in January, but we're we're starting to get a sense of the direction things are headed in. What does this mean for the American people? Well, Republicans, the Republicans who succeeded in this election, and there were fewer of them than, than the Republicans expected or the Democrats expected, they tended to focus on issues of inflation, promising to curtail inflation, on crime, and on controlling the border better. Uh, it's hard to imagine that Republican legislation on any of those issues is going to go anywhere. Uh, so that leaves them with the dilemma of what to do to deliver to their, their voters. And, of course, they've got some very combative conservatives who mostly want to investigate Hunter Biden, uh, the pullout from Afghanistan, uh, uh, President, uh, other aspects of President Biden's uh, administration, that's the thing they can do. You know, the the, the two things. One, the Senate, the White House will be able to get judges confirmed because uh, by holding the Senate, that is important and something of long-term significance for this administration. But there is a question about whether the Congress and the administration will be able to get the basic building blocks of government passed. That would be raising the debt ceiling, passing crucial appropriations bills. So I think that some are concerned that we're going to go back to that time when we had government shutdowns because the two sides just couldn't agree even on keeping the government running. Shane, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that, you know, for the American people, too, there's going to be more of a sense of, you know, why can't this Congress get anything done? Like the, 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 the election showed us that, you know, while these parties are polarized, I think that there is an argument that there are a great number of voters in this country who are still, we would say, as moderates, who want to see compromise, who want to see lawmakers get down, you know, to kind of bread and butter tabletop issues that matter in their lives. And if there's just increasing frustration that these parties can't get anything done, I'm not sure that's going to redound well to the benefit of Republicans and probably not the Democrats either. So it's, you know, you could you could say the, can't, the 2024 campaign is now on and it, President Biden's legislative agenda is probably effectively ended. Uh, and uh, I guess we all just buckle up because we've seen this show so many times before. Mm-hmm. Well, after leading the House Democrats for nearly two decades, Speaker Pelosi is stepping back. Scripture teaches us that for everything, there is a season a time for every purpose under heaven. 
My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. Susan, you literally wrote the book on Pelosi. It's called Madam Speaker. Why do you think she's making this move? You know, it, interesting, I sat down with her after this announcement uh, on the House, uh, from the well of the House yesterday with a small group of reporters. And she said that, uh, you know, it wasn't a big surprise, I think, to many of us that she stepped back from the leadership because she, in fact, made a commitment to do that four years ago. She said she'd serve only two more terms as Democratic leader. The the, the idea that she was going to stay on as a member of Congress was a little bit of a surprise. And she said that one thing that made her more open to that idea was that horrible assault on her husband at their home in San Francisco, and that made her more willing to stay in town. And she said, I didn't want to give them the satisfaction of leaving Washington entirely. Mm-hmm. Who might step into the role of House Minority Leader? Well, we, we, we Hakeem Jeffries, a congressman from Brooklyn who has been in the leadership for several years, is far and away the favorite. It's not even uh, clear to two of the uh, other members of Congress who indicate they might want to run have now announced that they're not going to do so. So it's, it is, to the degree you can predict an election that is a uh, secret ballot, uh, we do expect Hakeem Jeffries to be the successor to Nancy Pelosi. And like uh, as she was, he will be a groundbreaker. He'll be the first, if elected, the first person of color to lead one of the parties in either side of Capitol Hill. Well, that quickly brings us to the future of the House Speakership. House Republicans named Kevin McCarthy their leader this week. But it's unclear if he has enough votes to become Speaker. If McCarthy doesn't get enough votes to become Speaker, what happens? Uh, well, if you're asking me, what happens is they keep uh, they keep voting until they get a Speaker. And, you know, it is. I think it is entirely possible that McCarthy, who has been working toward this day since he lost his chance to be Speaker in 2015, will not be able to get over the finish line this time. He doesn't have a margin for error. He does have members of the Freedom Caucus who have already announced they will oppose his election. They don't need to elect somebody else. They can just defeat him, and then it will go back to the Republican Caucus to figure out what to do next. Well, we will check in on Senate leadership after the break. We're rounding up the news, and remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the smart wool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. Let's get back to the news roundup. Well, as we said, Democrats held on to the majority by a slim margin in the Senate. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky smacked down a challenge from Florida Senator Rick Scott. That's despite Scott getting a boost from former President Trump. Wendy, what happened? 
Well, you know, Rick Scott had one job during this midterm cycle, and that was to keep the Senate majority for Republicans. He was chairman of the National Republic, Republican Senate Campaign Committee, which is supposed to raise money and ensure Republican wins in the Senate. Well, they, they flipped a seat. There's still a runoff going on. They are not in the majority. And I think, you know, Rick Scott's plan to, to try to to leap to speaker to majority leader off of that was maybe a quixotic um, attempt on his part. And McConnell, who, you know, is not the most popular um, leader the Senate has ever had, he did kind of smack him down. Well, what do you think, if anything, Shane, this indicates about Trump's grip on the GOP? Well, that's a really good question. And I might argue that, you know, one, one way you could see this is that it's it's loosening. I mean, you know, McConnell really questioned Rick Scott's strategy of some of these candidates that he was funding and selecting um, in the midterms. And we knew, we'll famously remember that Mitch McConnell warned that the Senate might stay in Democratic hands because of what he called candidate quality. Uh, and, you know, and there were meetings where he was trying to get donors to redirect funds away from Rick Scott's initiatives to fundraising towards other candidates. So, you know, to the extent that Rick Scott kind of represents or at least had the backing of President Trump in picking the kind of candidates he might want to endorse. And Mitch McConnell was arguing for a different direction. Uh, McConnell kind of comes out the victor here insofar as he maintains his leadership position. But also it seems like maybe the warnings that he was forecasting, you know, came to pass and he could probably credibly say, although he might put it this so bluntly, uh, that by backing these kind of more Trumpist candidates, you know, we we didn't take back the Senate and that that is a failure, uh, an indictment of Trump's strategy, which, you know, arguably Rick Scott was helping to implement. Michael emails, when one political side uses their time to attack and prosecute the other, that it makes sense that payback will occur. Is there another path instead of retribution to restore a sense of balance between the political parties? And Adam tweets, I find it bewildering that some want to investigate everything related to the Trump family, but scoff at investigating Hunter's laptop. Democrats can choose to bury their head in the sand like ostriches or address some very real complaints that moderate Republicans have. Susan, what's your response to those perspectives? Well, to the first one, we hope we wish that would happen. We would love to see our politics become a little less toxic, even though we know the two parties hold uh, uh, different political perspectives, have different prescriptions and visions for the country. I, if, if the if the uh, emailer knows how we could do that, please pass it on. We would all like to hear that. Uh, to the second, you know, if if you think there is uh, uh, a, some a legitimate investigation that should be done on Hunter Biden. You're in luck because that is definitely going to happen. That is one of the things we are guaranteed to see in the Republican-controlled House. And and I think Americans will then be able to judge whether they think there is the material there of scandal, if there's a problem there, if there's uh, also allegations of misconduct that convey not only to Hunter Biden, but also to his father. Those are things we're going to spend some time, I suspect, finding out. Shane, anything to add? Yeah, I think Susan's right about that and the incentives are there for the House Republicans to do those investigations. But I would just say one thing, on, you know, particularly on Hunter Biden, who, who of course is not an elected official and doesn't serve in an official capacity, you know, you're going to need a Rosetta Stone to follow the different threads and you know, convoluted aspects of what the Hunter Biden laptop supposedly means. And I'm simply saying that as somebody, as a reporter who has tried to follow what supposedly this laptop is all about, and, and if, you know, and it's a very difficult, hard to follow story. So I think that the prospect for hearings might end up being more of a spectacle, really, that is really meant to sort of incite a, a base of Republican voters, but that moderates and independents and the kinds of people that Republicans are going to need to win back sizable majorities are going 
going to be scratching their head over because it's so convoluted. Well, that echoes this email we got. I wish the Senate and House would focus primarily on the bread and butter issues that Americans face every day, like housing affordability. I'm always encouraged when bipartisan legislation is passed, like the new suicide hotline of 988. I'm an independent, unaffiliated voter, and I hope everyone can come together for the good of the nation. We also got this email from John in New York who says, won't the stalemate being created by a closely divided Congress enable those who wish to move this country toward authoritarianism in 2024? Wendy, what do you think? Um, no, I, I don't think gridlock will, uh, with all respect to the to the writer, um, will create uh, a move toward authoritarianism. Um, I think it I think it just sort of slows things down, which frankly, a lot of voters and you know markets like is not a lot of government intervention. And I think what we saw last week was a complete and total repudiation of the stop the steal, you know, Donald Trump's false claim that fraud cost him his his reelection in 2020. Not a single, I mean, not a single uh, vocal election denier won their seats. There were House members who sort of went to Mar-a-Lago and said, sure, Donald, okay, you're the president, and then, um, and signed on to lawsuits, which is, you know, which wasn't, um, you know, a great thing to do for the smooth transition of power, but they weren't out there campaigning on election denying, and the ones who did lost. Well, before we move on, one more important congressional note. This week, the Senate voted to advance a bill protecting same-sex and interracial marriages under federal law. It's called the Respect for Marriage Act. Susan, what exactly does this legislation do and what doesn't it do? It codifies uh, the right of people to, uh, the right of same-sex marriage and, and interracial marriage. And the reason this is considered necessary is because the Supreme Court famously overturned uh, the right to uh, access to abortion after a 50-year 50 year, 50 uh, precedence. And there was concern that the same arguments used uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade could be used to overturn Supreme Court decisions that recognize the right to interracial and same-sex marriages. Uh, so that's why this is proceeded. You know, this was we, we thought this was going to pass before the, the midterms. Uh, uh, Schumer, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, held it back at the request of supporters because they thought Republicans would be more likely to support it after the midterms. And that looks like it is happening. It looks like this is a piece of legislation uh, that is uh, likely to be passed on a bipartisan basis. Uh, then we'll see perhaps a debate over codifying uh, the right to an abortion, which is likely to have a much tougher path. Now, Shane, this bill would not require any state to allow same-sex couples to marry. So what are the limitations here? Yeah, that's right. And there's also another important provision in this legislation, uh, which is to say that uh, religious organizations, you know, churches, other religious organizations that do not perform same-sex marriages cannot have their tax-exempt status revoked. And this was a very important piece of the bill that was put in to satisfy a a lot of Republicans who were worried that the same-sex marriage enforcement would somehow compel religious institutions to perform those marriages. That was never really, I think, a, a credible piece of what advocates for same-sex marriage have been calling for. But I think it's really notable, as well as when you look at the margin of the vote, this vote passed in the Senate, you know, 62 to 37 to advance it. I think that tells you that this has become an issue that has a lot of bipartisan support. And it's very telling that the left was willing to, in a sense, compromise or at least give Republicans some 
something that they felt that they needed to support this legislation. So it's very significant, and it kind of shows you the degree to which I think Americans have evolved on their thinking about same-sex marriage, uh, and also the degree to which there's bipartisan support for it uh, uh, in Congress, which, as we've been talking, is uh, an issue of there's vanishing, vanishingly few numbers of those kinds of issues right now. But, but have, do advocates think it, it goes far enough, Shane? I think a lot of advocates on the left might, and maybe on the right, too, might say that it doesn't go far enough. I mean, there are people who have argued that those religious uh, liberty exemptions should never have been in the bill. Uh, and also those who will say that it was never really credible that uh, the federal government was going to try to revoke the tax status of a church that performed, refused to perform same-sex marriages. Um, but, you know, it is a compromise. And like many compromises in the best spirit of compromise, not all sides will be happy. Uh, but there will be, um, you know, millions potentially of same-sex couples out there who are now uh, happy that their marriage rights are codified uh, in law and uh, count me and my husband among them. And so it, it, does it codify marriage equality, Shane? So if we should mention the Defense of Marriage Act, it denied federal benefits to same-sex couples. Will it overturn that? Uh, it does overturn the Defense of Marriage Act, as I understand it, or replaces it at any rate. But this essentially what it is saying is, as you said, it doesn't compel a state to recognize uh, a marriage, but it does essentially protect those federal benefits and federal rights for marriage. Well, let's turn to the 2024 presidential election. Former President Donald Trump announced this on Tuesday. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Trump's announcement follows a lackluster midterm performance from the GOP, which some in the party are blaming him on. Advisors tried to convince Trump not to make this announcement so soon after the midterms. Wendy, why do you think he moved ahead despite that advice? Because I think we've come to know Donald Trump a little bit over the last seven years, and we know that Donald Trump performs for an audience of one himself. He wants to be president again. He wants to vindicate himself um, from the humiliating defeat. But you can really see the whole GOP ship, the USS GOP, turning very slowly uh, in a new direction. I mean, he is not as old as Joe Biden, but he's, he's old. He's 76. He is, um, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out, in a withering editorial um, a day after the election, he has racked up Republican losses in 2018, 2020, 2021, and now 2022. And um, but he is thundering ahead um, with this presidency. I think is a personal vindication. Susan, are are you as confident that the GOP is shifting away from Trump? I am not. I mean, uh, we have we have predicted the demise of Donald Trump since he came down that elevator in 2015 and announced he was running for president. I think there are, there are some signs of Trump fatigue. Uh, you saw that in the election. He, was, he didn't have the sway that he had hoped to have in Senate races like the one in Pennsylvania, the, which is the seat that Democrats managed to pick up. You also see a willingness of other Republican presidential hopefuls to say they plan to move ahead uh, and run despite Trump's decision to run against so people like uh, Mike Pompeo has in in indicated he'll move ahead with a campaign. Mike Pence, uh, who came out with a new book this week, also has indicated he plans to, to run or at least that Trump's decision to run won't keep him from running. But Trump continues to have a core of support uh, in the Republican Party that has not fully abandoned him yet. And I think we want to be cautious about predicting what will happen uh, 
uh, moving ahead, moving ahead with Trump. Well, this week, the Wall Street Journal editorial board declared, quote, stop this deal is dead. That's after Republican Carrie Lake lost her gubernatorial bid in Arizona. Shane, why is it such a big deal that the Journal is saying this? Well, I think because the Wall Street Journal, you know, where, full disclosure, I proudly once worked as a reporter, uh, uh, you know, it is perceived as, obviously, it has a more conservative editorial page. Uh, but uh, I think is it perceived as um, uh, perhaps sort of echoing maybe more of conservative thinking and importantly, maybe even Rupert Murdoch's thinking. We've seen some pretty unflattering uh, covers on the cover of the New York Post this past week. I think it's tempting to try to overread, frankly, into those machinations. But the fact that the journal is coming out is essentially trying, to, which that editorial page is very much, you can think of it as a kind of establishment conservative voice uh, for, for whatever that means these days in a very fragmented party, to say essentially like, look, this movement, this idea never had any real credibility and now it's done. And importantly, by focusing on Carrie Lake, who was this enormously uh, um, charismatic, effective politician who many people were looking to, to as potentially even an inheritor uh, to the Trump movement, if Donald Trump were even not going to run her in some years in the future, essentially is saying, look, she hung everything on this Stop the Steal movement uh, and what should have been a great candidate who would have had good success lost potentially because of it. So I think the journal is essentially saying, look, this is a dead ender of an issue and Republicans should drop it. Okay, Susan, I'm coming back to you to see if you are once again skeptical because should drop it and will drop it. Two different things. Where do you think the GOP is heading? Can I just say one other thing? You know, I had mentioned, to to build on what Shane said, I had mentioned Trump fatigue among voters, and there were some signs of that in the midterms election. I got to say, I was also struck by fatigue by Trump. Uh, you know, this this announcement that he made lacked the kind of fire and brimstone that has come to mark uh, uh, Donald Trump's appearances at these rallies. It was he was more subdued. He was reading off a teleprompter. Uh, we we saw the ABC, one of the ABC uh, correspondents who was there shot some video and posted it on Twitter that showed people trying to leave the ballroom and security wouldn't let them out while, while Trump was speaking. So I it just it just it was a surprising it was a surprisingly tepid performance by someone who has built his political brand on being a really effective uh, crowd pleaser, a rabble rouser in rallies like this one. Pat writes, the essence of a Trump is still in the party with Ron DeSantis and others. You know, Shane, that that makes me uh, just really curious about, it's one thing to talk about a personality, right? It's another thing to talk about policy. And, and so even if Trump is not leading the party forward, are there going to really be major policy shifts in the GOP? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's that's putting it very well. I think is you, you can look at DeSantis as sort of the the Trumpist policies without the Trump. I mean, certainly, I think that's how he and his supporters would like to position him. Uh, and we should be clear too. You know, the stop the steal movement and the election denialism, while a very vocal part of what Trump has been about since he left office, is not all of the policies of, of Trumpism and the kind of populist movement that was ascendant in the Republican Party even before he was elected. So I don't think we should expect those to go away just because. Carrie Lake lost and the Stop the Steal movement, you know, kind of took a gut punch. We're discussing some of the week's biggest headlines. We'll be back with more in just a moment. (music) 
It's the News Roundup. Let's turn to Georgia. Last week, Republican incumbent Brian Kemp was re-elected governor. This week, Kemp testified before a grand jury during an investigation into the 2020 presidential election. Wendy, why was Georgia's governor asked to testify? Well, I think, uh, you know, Brian Kemp was, has been, that testimony had been sought for well over a year. Um, he really wasn't eager to do it, even though he is one of the uh, few Republican office holders who really stood up to Trump's efforts to overthrow uh, the results of the election. You know, he, he stood, and, and, and going back to the election tonight, I think, and he won re-election um, pretty handily. So um, he's, been, he's been avoiding wanting to testify, but now he, he did. Uh, we don't know exactly what he said, but he was there to describe Trump's efforts to get him to undo the will of the people of Georgia. Shane, former Trump advisor Michael Flynn and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina have also been ordered to testify. How are they involved in this investigation? Well, I think that what the grand jury and the prosecutors are interested in is seeing, you know, what they were aware of in terms of efforts by the president, the former president and his allies to try and overturn the election or to to, to, to stymie the process. And this kind of goes to this whole strange story about these so-called fake electors, you know, individuals that were signing false uh, election certificates to then somehow try to get them before the Congress on January 6th and, I guess, disrupt or somehow upend the certification of the election. So the prosecutors there want to know from Senator Graham and Michael Flynn, who are very close allies of the president, and General Flynn particularly has been someone who is very associated publicly by his own statements, to be clear, uh, with any number of different conspiracy theories about the deep state, about people trying to steal ballots, you know, election fraud, kind of a whole, you know, cornucopia of those ideas. So uh, I think that the prosecutors feel that they may have something to share with what the president himself was aware of about these efforts to try and overturn uh, the election or, or stymie the electoral count process. Susan, what's next in this probe and what effect could it have outside Georgia? Well, we know that the probe is near its conclusion, or at least the grand jury is near its conclusion. They, One of the prosecutors said they are down to a very few witnesses still to come. Those That would include uh, General Flynn and, and Senator Graham, who have fought efforts to testify. We actually thought Senator Graham was going to have to testify yesterday, but it got at the last minute his testimony was pushed off five days, so the grand jury may be able to hear from him uh, uh, next week. Uh, you know just stepping back, it is, it is uh, notable, I think, that we have multiple investigations into various aspects of Donald Trump's uh, business life and his activities as president that are that are moving ahead in serious ways. Uh, you know, there's this is we've we've not really had this situation where both a president has been under such serious scrutiny uh, by the legal system in Atlanta and in New York and at the Justice Department. Uh, and that he is also, of course, now a candidate to run again. So this is really uncharted ground. And there's been there's been some speculation that the reason Trump was so eager to announce his candidacy now, which seems pretty early, uh, is because he thinks it offers him some kind of legal shield to these investigations, although lawyers say that is not uh, actually true. Nobody 
is above the law in the United States. Well, let's move on to some tech news. This week, Twitter CEO Elon Musk sent an email to his staff saying they must be willing to work long hours and get behind the new quote-unquote hardcore Twitter or resign. While the deadline to decide came last night and hundreds of employees walked away. That means more than half the company has resigned or been laid off since Musk took over the company just a couple of weeks ago. Wendy, what effect will this have on Twitter's ability to function? It, it could have a tremendous impact. I mean, many, I think I saw, this is unverified, but I saw somewhere that 90% of the engineers are not working right now. So there could be Twitter outages. Um, there could be things that normally would be caught that would slip through. I mean, it's, and it's put Musk in this really awkward position of begging some of the people who answered that memo with a no, I don't want to stay or, or yes, whichever the right answer was to, to leave. Um, he's put in the position of pleading with them to come back to, okay, you can work from home and, uh, you know, I'll, what can I do to make you stay? And it's this sort of shoot first, ask questions later approach he's taken since buying the company. It's been really interesting if you're on Twitter to just sort of see these 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 long goodbyes. It's like, this may be my last tweet from, from people on the site. Well, on Wednesday, Musk said he plans to overhaul the company and then, quote, reduce my time at Twitter and find somebody else to run it, end quote. Shane, why, what is he trying to do here? I, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what what the approach is, what the, uh, the what, Shane, what's happening? <laughs> I think Elon Musk is trying to figure out what he wants to do at Twitter. I mean, you know, he was one of the more, the bigger kind of super users of Twitter and spent a lot of time on it. And, and, and I'm tempted to think that this is somebody who just was deeply interested in the company and just wanted to own it and then was going to figure out later how he thought he might run it. He has said that he believes that Twitter can be a kind of public square and that that's vital to free speech. And he does have potentially some grander ambitions of making Twitter kind of a node in a larger infrastructure that would do payment processing and messaging and all kinds of other things. But what seems abundantly clear is that he did not really understand how the company he just bought for $44 billion actually runs uh, and that he is getting a kind of trial by fire of this as well. Notably, a lot of the proposals that he's made for changes to Twitter are things that Twitter employees are saying, we've already tried that and it didn't work. It didn't help us make more revenues. It didn't help us with content moderation. So, you know, I think we're seeing him kind of learn out loud here. uh, And it's a very unconventional, to put it politely, strategy for a CEO of a company. Uh, But he bought the thing and now he owns it. And, and, And we're kind of watching this all play out on Twitter. Well, you know, Shane, it, it, it's the user end of things, right? People getting frustrated and perhaps leaving the app. But then you also have to deal with the advertisers. And Twitter's taken a big advertiser hit as well, right? Yeah, and you know, and, and clearly, you know, this is a company that you know derives most of its revenue from advertising. And Musk has said he wants to make more from subscriptions and user payments. Okay, putting that aside, how you do that with the math? If he creates a space in which people either don't want to be there because they don't like the way he's running it, or it becomes a place where you're confronted with all kinds of you know vile images and pornography and racist tropes, etc. Which, to be clear, the content moderation people at Twitter were were aware of and trying to control. Then and big-name advertisers aren't going to want to go, you know, hang out their signs there uh, and are going to be moving away from that. So, I mean, he really risks alienating not just the user base but the advertisers. And without that, I don't think you have Twitter. 
Well, another major tech and business story, the crash of the massive cryptocurrency exchange FTX. At one point, this company was worth $32 billion with a Super Bowl ad featuring Larry David. Susan, what happened to FTX? Yeah. You know, the good news about the collapse of FTX, it's that I've never understood the cryptocurrency market. And now perhaps I don't need to ever learn it uh, because the, the collapse was quite spectacular uh, and in a very short uh, period of time raises all kinds of questions uh, about uh, how this company was run, whether there needs to be uh, more government oversight uh, and regulation of of the way that, that these uh, these markets are, are working. Uh, so, but if you want an explanation of of uh, cryptocurrency, you'll need to turn to someone else on our panel. <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to put that that detailed explanation to any of you today because I like you all. But we should say 100,000 claims have already been filed against the company, and that number could raise to 1 million, according to its bankruptcy filings released in court on Monday. Wendy, what's the scope of the legal challenges facing FTX right now? Well, I think I can sum this up by noting that if the guy who was in charge of liquidating Enron says this is the worst thing he's ever seen um, in terms of their record keeping, in terms of how they work, how they handled money, I mean, I, I think just being at Bloomberg, I might know a little more about crypto than than. Susan, tiny bit, but um, <laughs> tiny. But I do. But I do know that, like, it, it it's money, and the way they mishandled it um, is, you know, is wiping people out. So I do think this will be a massive lawsuit. It may even rope in his parents. I think one of his parents is on the board of the company, and it's just an unholy mess. Well, how could this change how crypto is regulated in the years ahead, Wendy? Well, I think. Even the Congress we were talking about earlier in the show is very interested in looking under the hood and trying to figure it out. It's a little interesting when Congress tries to investigate high tech because, you know, many of them are octogenarians who have trouble with their iPhones. But the um, but both the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee are going to be investigating Sam Bankman-Fried in this mess um, in the next I think in the lame duck. Well, here's a message we got from one of you. Ticketmaster is another monopoly that needs to be broken up, especially since they also own a large percentage of the secondary market. So one more note before we shift away from tech, don't cross the Swifties. That's the lesson Ticketmaster learned this week. Fans are angry and some politicians are too. Democratic House member from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, tweeted, quote, daily reminder that Ticketmaster is a monopoly. Its merger with Live Nation should never have been approved, and they need to be reined in. Break them up, end quote. And it was reported today the Department of Justice has been investigating Ticketmaster for potential antitrust violations. The criticism isn't new. We recently dedicated a program to whether Ticketmaster Live Nation is a monopoly. Here's what the company's president, Joe Berktold, told us. We understand that part of the role that Ticketmaster has taken in the industry over many years, many decades, is it's the one that gets blamed for a lot of things. We'll keep following that story. Let's get to the economy. Inflation is at a 40-year high, but October's numbers show inflation has actually slowed down over the past four months. Shane, how optimistic should we be about this? 
Well, I guess we should we should cling to any signs that inflation is easing. So got me in the category of I'll, I'll remain cautiously optimistic. Uh, but yeah, prices at the wholesale level rose 8% in October from a year ago, which was the fourth straight decline. Uh, and that does seem to be a pretty significant sign that inflation pressures are easing from these, these levels that everyone has been feeling. Uh, uh, that uh, and, and, and would also in the near term mean that the Federal Reserve is probably likely to increase its interest rate in smaller increments. We've all been seeing the Fed, you know, kicking them up these short-term rates by three quarters of a point. Now four meetings in a row. Which, if you've done anything like try to buy a house or get a mortgage lately, you are seeing the effects of that and how that can dramatically change your financial situation. So um, this will be good news for the economy potentially, especially maybe heading into the holidays, and uh, certainly is probably another piece of good news for for Democrats uh, who would very much like uh, in two years from now not to have eight percent inflation. So if it's trending down, that's good political news for the president and his party as well. Susan, any word from the Fed on any further action on their part? Uh, well, not since this, this, I don't believe since this report came out, it does make it uh, less of an imperative to c- continue ticking up the interest rates uh, at the clip they have been doing. You know, the, uh, the encouraging thing is that okay, inflation's still high, but it's easing, and the job market continues to be pretty strong. So is it possible for the Fred, Fred to negotiate this so we have what they call a soft landing, where we do not, the economy does not get tipped into a recession? We're still watching that with concern. You know, historically, that's often been the, the aftermath of having to rein in inflation in this way. But this is, this is, uh, this I think makes people, makes economists cautiously optimistic that that may be possible. And that would be good news for Americans. Let's end uh, with some space news. NASA launched the uncrewed Orion spacecraft this week as part of its Artemis 1 mission. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. The spacecraft should reach within 60 miles of the moon's surface next week. Shane, how has the mission gone so far? Uh, it seems like it's going pretty well, and uh, uh, you, we had this amazing photograph that was um, sent back from the Orion uh, module that's heading to the moon of the Earth, you know, kind of there off uh, in, the, in the near distance, which is something that we're used to seeing from the Apollo missions when they went to the moon as well. Um, this is going to be many years before we actually send a crew back to the moon, and it's a move towards NASA putting a permanent base there. Uh, but as a lifelong space geek, uh, I was thrilled to see this mission today, and it's just... It's wonderful, and it's a reminder of what uh, the space program can do to get people excited. I know not everybody loves the idea of a manned space program. It sometimes feels like it's a waste of money, but it is kind of awe-inspiring to see those photographs that it's turning back. And we're going to see amazing photographs of the moon here coming up in the next few days. Well, NASA says some of the next Americans to land on the moon will be a woman and a person of color. Here's astronaut Christina Koch speaking with NPR. For me, the most um, exciting thing is that I'm certainly going to know that first woman that walks on the moon. We are all big cheerleaders of each other in the astronaut corps, and that's the most exciting part. The last crewed mission to the moon was NASA's Apollo 17 nearly 50 years ago. And we will leave the roundup there. Wendy Benjaminson was with us today. She's the deputy managing editor of U.S. government at Bloomberg News. Shane Harris, he covers national security for The Washington Post. And Susan Page, the Washington bureau chief for USA Today. Her latest book is Madam Speaker, a biography of Nancy Pelosi. Wendy, Shane, Susan, thanks. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us.
I'm Jen White. It's time for the Global Edition of the News Roundup. Let's get started. Final preparations are underway for the world's largest event, the FIFA World Cup. An investigation into the killing of a renowned journalist anchors one country, and a meeting between Biden and Xi. What does it mean for fraught U.S.-China relations? It's time for the International Roundup. Stick around for the next hour. Joining us from Ukraine's capital is Greg Myrie. He covers national security for NPR. Greg, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And on the line from the Chinese capital, David Rennie. He's the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and also co-host of the new podcast, Drum Tower. David, welcome back. Hello. Well, let's start with a number, 10 million. President Zelensky says that's the number of Ukrainians who are without power after a fresh wave of missile strikes by Russia. Greg, from where you are in the capital, Kiev, what impact are these strikes having on everyday life? Well, it's getting harder and harder. Ukrainians knew this was coming, uh, and these these Russian missile strikes, which have been ramped up over the past month, uh, are are knocking out parts of the electricity grid. The Ukrainians are very good at putting it back together, and it becomes this cycle in this race. Russia knocks it out. Ukrainians fix it. Um, so who can sort of stay ahead of the game? The, the numbers have been getting worse. The 10 million uh, people without power right now. That's about a quarter of Ukraine's population. Uh, We're getting other ominous signs from uh, the energy company responsible for for Kyiv. They're saying uh, people should be prepared for energy cuts that could last four days instead of just hours, which is is pretty much the case now. They, They sort of schedule the outages and shift them and People can kind of prepare for them. Um, the city has uh, suggested that people, if they have relatives in a, in a more rural area or outside uh, the big cities, they might want to go stay with them. So we're, we're bracing for what's going to be a very, very tough winter here. And that 10 million figure is, is probably the highest number we've seen yet. Uh, as you note there, temperatures are, are dropping. How concerned are officials about the next few months if this many Ukrainians are being left in the dark and without heat? How are they preparing? Well, um, they're they're coming up with all sorts of plans. Uh, one again, in, in, just in the capital here, they're talking about creating a thousand heating centers, basically schools where people could go uh, to stay warm, and and perhaps the emergency generators could could keep heat in those places uh, if if power gets cut to the city. Um, but it's it's going to be hard. This is a city of three million people, and you know, er, in the, early in the war, uh, people were leaving their home last winter, February, March, but they they were going to other parts of the country that were safer. There's really no place that is immune here because the Russians are hitting basically every major city. They fired 100 missiles on Tuesday, sort of the biggest single attack of the war, and they knocked out power, damaged power considerably everywhere from Kiev in the capital to Odessa in the south, Lviv in the west, Kharkiv in the northeast. So there's really no place you can go uh, to get away from these strikes. And, and that's going to further complicate things. It's not like people can just move west like they were doing uh, in the early days of the war and, and stay away from the fighting. Well, you mentioned, Greg, that Ukrainians are good at repairing the damage being done by these missile strikes. But is there a limit? to the resilience of their power grid. 
You know, they, they have certainly exceeded expectations with their resilience and their willingness to fight back. And Ukrainians have been through some hard winters in the past. So I, I don't think just um, this alone is going to break them. But the, the problem could just be in, in the, the, uh, they simply get overrun in, the, in terms of the number of people they have available to fix uh, power outages, the, uh, the equipment. You need to get replacement parts. So even if they can fix it, if it requires uh, parts uh, that have to come from somewhere else in Europe or, or further afield, and it takes two or three months to get here, that could certainly be a problem. And it's not just the electricity. When the power grid goes down, this is often affecting the heat and water. So people sort of lose everything. Um, And, uh, you know, the temperatures have dipped below freezing. We got our first dusting of snow just yesterday. Um, So the government and the people of Ukraine have been very resourceful. Um, It's uh, going to be a tough winter. And again, just to point out that the Russian strategy strategy now is, is really not so much on the battlefield with there's no real prospect that their ground troops will advance. Their Navy has not been very effective. Their manned aircraft uh, is not really flying over Ukraine. The one vulnerable spot the Russians have found is to fire at civilian infrastructure, uh, civilian homes, civilian power plants. Um, that is really the Russian strategy right now. Well, we should talk about the missile strike that killed two people in Poland on Tuesday. President Zelensky says he's received assurances from his top commanders that, quote, it wasn't our missile. It puts him at odds with NATO and his Western allies who've concluded it was likely a stray air defense missile launched by Ukraine. NATO Secretary General is Jens Stoltenberg. Let me be clear. This is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. Thursday, reporters pressed the Pentagon for more information about what led NATO to so quickly conclude the missile wasn't launched from Russia. Pentagon spokesperson Sabrina Singh was asked why Ukraine hadn't initially been invited to take part in the investigation. Well, this is Poland's investigation to lead. So I would direct you to Poland to further answer that question. We are not leading this investigation. Uh, We have offered our full support to the Polish government. But again, I wouldn't be able to speak to why particular countries are not involved in, in the investigation itself. On Thursday, Polish officials relented and did grant Ukrainian investigators access to the site of the missile strike. David, remind us why this incident was such a big deal. Well, I mean, two uh, Poles uh, in this village right next to the border were killed by the strike. So that's always going to be a big deal. And it's, of course, incredibly embarrassing uh, for Ukraine's allies, starting with America, but also you know other countries in NATO, to have to basically say that they don't agree with the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, that actually this, this probably was uh, an old-fashioned uh, Soviet-made anti-aircraft, uh, anti-sort uh, of uh, uh, air defense missile that was trying to shoot down an incoming Russian missile and seems to have landed on the Polish side of the border. Although that's embarrassing, probably from a sort of geopolitics point of view, it's better that it wasn't a Russian attack on Poland because one of the big things that uh, President Biden and others have feared from the start was that this could escalate into NATO territory, which would bring us into the kind of brink of a much more serious conflict. So the idea that you know, had there been any idea that Russia had deliberately targeted a NATO member like Poland, I think that would have been much more serious. So we should, you know, be very sorry for the death of the two poor Poles on the border. But in some ways, if this was just a tragic accident and a Ukrainian missile that went astray, that's probably better than a Russian attack. 
We also learned this week that the top military official in the U.S., General Mark Milley, tried to speak to his Russian counterpart following the strike on Tuesday. Greg, briefly explain what happened. Right. So uh, Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, tried to get a hold of his his counterpart and wasn't able to reach him. Um, Now, it's hard to read figure out how much to read into one phone call. Um, This has happened in the past because we've also heard just in recent days that the Americans have kept a channel open with the Russians. Uh, It seems Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has been meeting with senior Russian officials uh, to talk about uh, uh, not just Ukraine, but but things besides Ukraine, the, the larger relationship. We know that the CIA director, Bill Burns, met with his uh, Russian counterpart, the Russian intelligence chief in Turkey this uh, this week. In fact, and, and then Burns, in fact, happened to be here in uh, in uh, Kiev when uh, the missile attack came on Tuesday. But the, but the Americans and the Russians do seem to have some quiet channels going. So I, I'm not sure we, we should read too much into this phone call, but it it does just speak to a very unpredictable relationship. And that was a very tense moment on Tuesday, especially in the very initial stages when many people suspected that this was, in fact, a Russian missile. And that does not seem to be the case now. But yeah, you, you would want these uh, the top uh, military officials in both these countries to be able to get a hold of each other on very short notice. Well, General Milley has also doubled down on his assessment that the chances of Ukraine seeing Russia off the battlefield are, quote, not high. Wednesday, Milley provided this to contextualize his recent suggestion that Ukraine should consider the coming winter an opportunity to negotiate an end to the conflict. The probability of Russia achieving its strategic objectives of conquering Ukraine, of overrunning Ukraine, the probability of that happening is close to zero. But they do currently occupy about 20 percent of Ukraine. So that that, the military task of militarily kicking the Russians physically out of Ukraine is a very difficult task. So in terms of probability, the probability of a Ukrainian military victory defined as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine, the probability of that happening anytime soon is not high. On Wednesday, President Zelensky was asked about peace talks, and over a video link to an audience in Singapore, he said, quote, a simple ceasefire won't do the trick, and added, unless we liberate our whole territory, we will not bring peace. Greg, really quickly, if we go back to the fact that 10 million are without power, how much pressure is Zelensky under from Ukrainians to look for a settlement? Well, at this point, not a whole lot. There's a very overwhelming majority here that still want to fight, given the length of this war, which they date back to 2014, uh, the atrocities that have been committed uh, in, in the past eight or nine months. So I would say Zelensky at this point is not facing a lot of pressure to negotiate. However, the the, the winter uh, could be very harsh, and that, that could change some minds. But they're feeling that they have the momentum uh, on the battlefield, and they want to press ahead. I want to stay with Ukraine for the moment. We got this tweet from Ray who says, why is Biden asking for $37 billion for Ukraine? Ukraine is not part of NATO. The war is on European turf. The Europeans need to dig deep into their own pockets. I'm weary of protecting Europe while they sit back cheerleading. Greg, Ukrainians will know there's been a power shift here in Washington. This week, President Biden asked Congress to approve more than $37 billion in new aid for Ukraine. Are there concerns that U.S. aid in the new year might be harder to come by? 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are, are tremendously worried about this, that um, assistance from the U.S. could could slow down uh, from Europe, just global support overall. So it's an absolutely a, a huge concern for Ukraine. Um, the Biden administration uh, would like to get this package of $37 billion passed before Congress changes hands and the House goes to the Republicans in January. The U.S. is still working its way through a $40 billion uh, aid package uh, passed last uh, spring. Um, There's no doubt this has really changed the tone of the war. It's given Ukraine uh, weapons that it just it didn't have, that it's able to do things, uh, push the Russians back, hit them with accuracy from greater distance with artillery. This has been a, a tremendous uh, changer, a game changer in, in this war. Um, now the question is, okay, should the U.S. be doing this? Um, the Biden administration and, and many, many others think that this is, is really critical, that, that the U.S. and Europe are, are close allies and the security of Europe and the stability of Europe matter. And even if Ukraine is not a NATO member, uh, this is is still very important uh, and that the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, has pushed and pushed and pushed, not only in Ukraine, but in other countries as well. And this is a, a place where perhaps he, he needs to be stopped. Um, so all of these factors are, are involved, and, and the Europeans have, um, have contributed quite a bit, not as much as the Americans. But uh, we've seen a real uh, solidarity between the U.S. and Europe, which is still holding for now. Um, the longer it goes on, the more concerns there are. It could, you could see cracks and fractures. But for now, it's it's holding, and it's it's absolutely um, given the Ukraine's abilities that they did not have eight nine months ago. Well, let's end with some of the latest reporting from Kherson. After the euphoria of the city's recapture last weekend, the BBC's Jeremy Bowen spoke to some of those now struggling to find the basics to survive. This is Yuri. He was elated to see the Russians retreat. Happy moment inside, but you're still still cautious because. It's not a happy story yet. We don't know what will happen. We're afraid of some shelling. We're afraid of some catastrophic blow somewhere nearby. For the Ukrainians, the priority now is getting these people what they want. There's food for sale in the market, though not everybody has got money. But there's very little running water, electricity. More than anything else, though, what people need is security because Kherson is still a war zone, the wider region, and the Russians are still within range. Greg, how much more do we know about Russia's occupation of Kherson and what they left behind? Well, the city itself was not that badly damaged in, in contrast to some of the other cities we've seen. The Russians entered it in the first days of the war, took it over. So the buildings are still standing. Now, they did. the Russians did take down the power system, the water system, um, and, and did a lot of damage before they retreated across the river. And, and already we're, we're getting more and more stories and reports about the Russians detaining people, torturing people. Um, residents who said they just heard screaming coming from these makeshift detention facilities that the Russians set up during their time there. So it was by all accounts a very, very brutal occupation by the Russians, even if the physical destruction to the buildings wasn't huge. And again, we do need to stress the Russians retreated across the river an estimated 30,000 troops. So they're still within uh, artillery range of the Ukrainian military, which has moved into Kherson. Uh, They're just separated by a, a wide river, but they could certainly still hit each other. 
Haven't seen a lot of fighting since the liberation a week ago, but uh, you, ha- you still have two big militaries down there. Well, one other important headline concerning this part of Eastern Europe. On Thursday, a Dutch court convicted three men of murder for their role in shooting down a Malaysia Airlines passenger jet with Russian surface-to-air missile. The strike killed all 298 people on board the aircraft as it flew over separatist-controlled region of eastern Ukraine in 2014. David, those found guilty were tried in absentia. To what extent will the families of those killed feel that justice has been served? It was a pretty moving scene in the courtroom in the Netherlands. So you're right, there was no one in the dock uh, for this crime. Uh, But there were 200 uh, family members, uh, many of them Dutch, but from all corners of the world, because this was a plane from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur that was then flying on. People were going to change planes, go to places like Australia. And in fact, the Australians and Dutch have been in the lead on this investigation. And you did see some pretty moving quotes uh, from family members in the court saying that at least they felt some sort of justice uh, had been done, even though the chances are that no one is ever actually going to serve a day in prison for this. And the diplomatic sort of seeking of justice continues because the Dutch and Australian governments uh, are going to be taking action against the Russian government, uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization. And I think this is a reminder that this is, you know, you know, the listener who made the good point about why should Americans pay for what's happening in Ukraine? It's Europe's war. This is, as Greg said, this is about the whole basis, the rules-based order. And it's not just this year that Russia has been testing that in Ukraine. Back in 2014, not only did they annex territory, but this shooting down by their set, the Russian-backed separatists with a Russian missile system of a giant airliner flying peacefully over Ukraine is a reminder that Vladimir Putin has really been leading a rogue government testing the rules and denying any involvement in this, accusing the Dutch of making the whole thing up. And so it really is a kind of fight to defend the entire rules-based order uh, from Vladimir Putin. So you could make the case that those Ukrainian soldiers are actually fighting with Western weapons on behalf of the whole West uh, to, to inflict damage and punish Vladimir Putin for his years of aggression. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Zara Herji is a climate reporter at Bloomberg. Zara, welcome back. Thanks so much. Well, President Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping during the G20 summit in Indonesia this week. We had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It was clear. He was clear and I was clear that we'll defend American interests and values, promote universal human rights, and stand up for the international order and work in lockstep with our allies and partners. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking to manage this competition responsibly. David, these two men know each other well. What were your main takeaways from this meeting? So it's a relief that they met in person. Remember, this is their first face-to-face meeting uh, since they've both been leaders of their countries. But you're right. They do know each other much better than you would expect for a Chinese and American leader. And that's because during the Obama administration, uh, President Obama and his team did something really smart. They worked out that Xi Jinping, who was then the vice president of China, was clearly going to be the top leader that had been signaled in Beijing. And so they sent uh, Joe Biden as his kind of formal counterpart, vice president to vice president, basically to get to know this Chinese leader who really wasn't well known in the outside world. And they spent a lot of time together over a couple of visits, you know, hours and hours in really kind of informal settings and came away with a sense of each other. Now, that doesn't mean that they're friends, but it does mean that the relationship, which has really been in free fall for a whole bunch of reasons to do with 
the growing sense that these are not countries with anything kind of in common in terms of values, but also interests. And then some specific things like uh, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker's visit to Taiwan this summer was a massive provocation to the Chinese and they responded with huge military drills. And because of COVID, because these two men hadn't met in person, because the Chinese were so angry about Taiwan that they hadn't, uh, they'd suspended and cancelled a whole bunch of talks with the Americans on everything from sort of uh, counter narcotics to people smuggling to climate change. You know, John Kerry, the American climate envoy, was not able to talk to his Chinese counterpart. There was a sense the relationship was basically completely paralyzed. And I think the Americans uh, realized that if they couldn't get the two top leaders uh, into the room together to draw on those years that they have at least, you know, had a lot of contact with each other, that things were going to free fall. And so this meeting, there was no kind of formal announcement of an agreement or anything at the end, but it was reasonably friendly. And the Chinese tone was very much trying to de-escalate to kind of turn down the heat a bit. And so I think that that, given how bad things have been for the last several months, the fact that the two top leaders could meet in a reasonably friendly way and then set their two teams to talk about a whole bunch of just practical stuff from climate change to, you know, sort of counter narcotics cooperation, just getting a bit more normal is a huge relief, uh, not just for US and China, but also the whole region, which have been very concerned about the level of tensions. Well, also during the G20 summit, the White House announced that the U.S. and China would resume talks on climate change. And of course, China and the United States are two of the top greenhouse gas emitters. Zara, Bloomberg reports China may add more new coal-fired power plants in the next few years as a result of the global energy shortage. With the Chinese economy in a pinch, what expectations should we have that Beijing is willing to reduce its carbon footprint? It's definitely a big question, and that was unwelcome news, you know, as these major international climate talks are underway. But there have been a lot of talk globally, you know, not just in China, but in the EU surrounding the kind of current energy crisis that there may be some efforts in the short term to kind of ramp up fossil fuel use, but that should not impact the long-term or really medium-term trajectory to reduce emissions and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. And I do think, you know, what you were just talking about, the fact that it was formally announced that the U.S. and China have resumed climate talks is a big deal. It came at exactly sort of the right moment it needed to at the second week of these international climate negotiations. And while those leaders may not exactly be considered friends, uh, the U.S. Special Envoy, John Kerry, to the U.S., um, as well as his Chinese counterpart, do consider themselves friends. And they have been meeting unofficially um, throughout the climate talks. And we sort of saw that relationships taken even more step forward, you know, after that announcement. So John Kerry announced that his good friend, his Chinese counterpart, made a surprise visit to a methane pledge discussion yesterday. And so those are all positive signs that not only are those two countries working together, but they are working together within the global world, both seen as leaders and pushing the conversation forward to overall, down the line, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. Indonesia has been making side deals at the G20. This week, they pledged to decarbonize their energy sector and now have a $20 billion financing deal with industrialized nations to help. Industrialized nations are typically the world's biggest polluters, but less industrialized nations are often on the front lines of the climate crisis, especially nations like Indonesia. Zara, what are the details of this deal? I mean, it's 
a really big deal. Uh, it's not that Indonesia has pledged that will continue to use fossil fuels forever. They already had an existing pledge, for example, to phase out coal use by 2055. But with this deal, they've moved all of their deadlines effectively much earlier. And it's not the 20 billion. I mean, that's specifically within the U.S. will be playing a huge role in that. And it's both to fund this country, which relies so much on coal specifically, but other fossil fuels, to make that transition away from fossil fuels towards renewables. And so there will be different pockets of money, say, to help the country uh, shift its electricity sector to run more on climate-friendly transportation modes. So I'm thinking electric vehicles and just ramping up electricity in general, as well as overall kind of boosting their resilience against future impacts. Well, on Wednesday at the COP27 summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, Brazil's president-elect Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva promised to crack down on illegal deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. Ninguém está salvo. He says no one is safe. The climate emergency affects everyone, although its effects impact those who are most vulnerable. Inequality between the rich and the poor manifests itself even in the efforts to reduce the effects of climate change. Zara Lula's announcement is a stark departure from outgoing President Jair Bolsonaro. Explain how. Well, Bolsonaro saw deforestation expand under his watch, specifically of the Amazon, which is something that Lula, when he was president before, had specifically worked on reducing that. And part of his campaign speech and now his his pitch that he is going to be president is, I am going to not just reduce deforestation, but actually zero it out. That would be a huge deal. Obviously, it's we'll see what actually happens, but this is massively welcomed by the climate world because pieces of the Amazon have sort of reached local tipping points where maybe they are releasing more carbon dioxide than they are taking in overall as like a major massive forest that expands, you know, many miles. It is not yet a tipping point, but that is a big concern within the scientific world. We rely on our forests, especially tropical forests, to be a natural sink of carbon emissions. And with deforestation, with rising temperatures, that could potentially change. And that wouldn't just impact local temperatures and climate change in Brazil, that would impact the whole world. And so the one thing that Brazil can do now is really reduce that. And that's seen as very welcome. I mean, Lula's entire visit to COP27 has been met with fanfare, and it's seen as a really big deal that his first international speech was to this climate conference. David, for years, the Chinese government has taken a hard and unpopular line on combating COVID, but Beijing seems to be ready to make some concessions to its zero COVID policy. Briefly, what changes did the government make? Well, they're trying to make it more sustainable. So they're tweaking it uh, in, in a bunch of ways, you know, there's slightly reduced quarantine for people coming in and out of the country. Uh, they're reducing, uh, they're telling officials not to be kind of arbitrary and to do mass testing when there's no need in every area to focus on the most infected places. But the truth is, uh, it's because the, the case numbers are rising because of these very contagious new variants. They're also, it's costing them an absolute fortune, hundreds of billions of dollars spent this year on COVID testing in China. I mean, I have to get tested every day here in Beijing. It's all free from the government. You have to queue up for hours to get it done. It's a very unsustainable situation. But 
They're not actually giving up on zero COVID yet. Zara, I know we have to let you go, but I quickly wanted to touch on one more story. In Egypt, political prisoner Ala Abdul Fattah has ended his hunger strike. That's after more than 200 days. It was prompted in part by his poor jail conditions. And last week, he escalated it by refusing water. He's been in prison for nearly a decade for comments critical of Egypt's government. What do we make of the timing of this news? Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that the end of his more extreme hunger strike, which really started with the launch of COP27 and this major international climate conference in Egypt, ended not because any kind of deal was made surrounding his release, but just due to what appears to be deteriorating medical conditions. According to his family, he did collapse in the shower last week. And when he woke up, you know, he was getting medical support and decided after that to end the absolute hunger strike. Since April, he had reduced his calories to something around 100 calories a day, but he was still drinking water. What was new starting in early November is that he had stopped drinking water as well. And that is largely what has resumed. It's unclear if he's going to be eating you know, back to normal or not. And it's also unclear what his fate will be. Mm-hmm. But his sister attended COP27 last week and there was a lot of support at the conference, a lot of spotlight, you know, on his the fact that he was a political prisoner and his plight and this international push. I know that the new British UK prime minister specifically brought up his his conditions with the Egyptian prime minister with the Egyptian president on the sidelines of COP27, but unfortunately it's still an open question what will happen to him now. That's Zara Herji. She's a climate reporter at Bloomberg. Zara, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks again for having me. On Monday, the Justice Department informed the Israeli Justice Ministry that the FBI opened an investigation into the death of Palestinian-American Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. She was killed on May 11th while covering an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. Greg, what kind of cooperation would the FBI investigation require from the Israeli government? Well, that I think remains to be seen. The Israelis say they're they're not going to provide any, um, and it, the, the all sorts of legal issues here because uh, Abu Akleh was in the West Bank and in, in the town of Jenin, and so that's not Israeli territory. The Israeli Israelis have occupied it militarily since the 1967 war, but even the Israelis don't consider it part of their country. So it's really the the U.S. or the FBI would be seeking cooperation with the Israeli military specifically, and again, they say they're not going to help. And Israel's government and military are very upset about this. They sort of say, none of your business. This is really uh, up for the Israelis uh, to take care of. Now, even just this this pressure we've seen so far uh, from from the U.S. side, uh, the Biden administration said back in July that Abu Akleh was likely killed by unintentional Israeli fire, but the information they had was inconclusive. This sort of brought the Israelis around from to, to from from uh, saying it wasn't known who shot her to yes, perhaps it was unintentional fire. Um, but I don't know if we're going to see any cooperation uh, between the, U- the FBI and the Israeli military here. But I think the larger point is we're going to see, I think, almost certainly more and more contentious issues between the U.S. and Israel uh, the, with uh, w- w- the, the 
Benjamin Netanyahu is, is going to become the next prime minister, it certainly looks like. Um, he's had real friction uh, with the Biden administration, um, and I would expect we're going we're gonna to see more of this. So whatever comes out of this incident, I think it reflects a, a more contentious relationship in the future. Shireen was wearing a flak jacket marked press when she was shot in May. In September, the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, said she was most likely killed in quote-unquote unintentional fire from an Israeli soldier who didn't realize she was a journalist. David, what's your read on the Israeli government's reaction to this FBI investigation? Look, I think it's a reminder that uh, Israel uh, believes that the, the American government should have its back no matter what. Uh, that even when you have, I think it's 20 Democratic senators uh, from President Biden's own party signing a letter calling for this independent FBI investigation, and even though the current Israeli government, the outgoing Israeli government, is, you know, slight, as, as Greg said correctly, you know, less confrontational than we expect uh, the next Netanyahu government to be, even the outgoing government of Yair Lapid had said that Israel conveyed a strong protest and that that Israel will not allow its soldiers to be investigated by the FBI or any other foreign country, no matter how friendly it may be. And clearly, Israel is hugely sensitive about being under criticism at places like the UN or from European governments. This is a reminder that even a a very friendly Israeli government will not tolerate the slightest hint of criticism. And as Greg says, things are going to get even bumpier once uh, we assume uh, Bibi Netanyahu is back in the prime minister's office. Well, an update on the situation in Tigray. Humanitarian aid has finally arrived after a peace deal was signed two weeks ago between the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan forces. The agreement hopes to end a brutal war that has killed hundreds of thousands of people and displaced millions. Medical supplies and food are being delivered to Tigray, which has been ravaged by war and is now dealing with a severe humanitarian crisis. The UN says millions are in need after being cut off from basic supplies like health care and food for two years. When humanitarian officials speaking with The Guardian about the aid said, quote, so far we are talking about a drop in the ocean, not even a drop really, end quote. That's a story we'll be watching closely. Well, let's end with a huge international sports story that's not off to a good start. Mister, you invited the whole world to the you you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. Yeah, like, no, no, but 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 no, but listen, but listen, but listen. But you can break the camera. You want to yeah, break the camera? Okay, no, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by 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 smashing the camera. The FIFA World Cup starts on Sunday, but earlier this week, an accredited Danish news crew was taken off air as they were broadcasting live from Qatar. The hosts of the World Cup have since apologized to the group. David, we've said before, Qatar is a small but wealthy country. How will the next few weeks test the authorities there? Look, it's it's very tricky for them uh, because they're under a lot of attack for the environmental impact of this. It's a very hot country. You're going to have these air-conditioned stadiums with the grass water with sort of desalinated water that, you know, uses a lot of electricity. Uh, There's, you know, all sorts of allegations that Qatar may have paid bribes to get the World Cup in the first place. There's clearly a lot of focus on the conditions of the migrant laborers who helped to build the stadiums and also Qatar's uh, laws making uh, gay sex uh, criminal in Qatar. That said, uh, actually, my own magazine, The Economist, we had an editorial this week saying, you know, be careful, because uh, if you say that there shouldn't be any major sporting event in a country that has that view of homosexuality, then you basically can't have a sporting event in most Muslim countries. And are you saying that you can't have a World Cup in any country, any corner of the Middle East? Actually, Qatar is not a democracy, of course, but it's by far, it's, it's you know, by no means the worst dictatorship in the Middle East. 
And there is a sort of slight sense of double standards because we had a World Cup in Russia, which has a terrible human rights record. Uh, we just had the Winter Olympics in Beijing, where I am, which has an even worse criminal uh, you know, human rights record. And so I think there is a sense we need to be careful about not just saying that the entire Middle East, because it doesn't share our own values, uh, can't host the big events. And fascinating, you saw the French team uh, saying that they were not going to wear, for example, these armbands, uh, making a point about uh, sort of one love, these 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 sort of pro uh, human rights, pro pro sort of gay rights armbands. It's a very tricky subject. There's good people on both sides of this argument, but I think there is a danger uh, of sort of saying that Muslim values uh, means that a country can't host a big sporting event, and that's kind of problematic. Well, French President Emmanuel Macron has been trying to defuse some of the criticism. He told reporters, quote, we must not politicize sport. But Greg, I think for, for people who follow sports of any type, sports have always been been political. So is this really any different than, you know, someone taking a knee during a football game or perhaps raising a fist on while they're accepting a medal at the Olympics? Um, yeah, these are all great questions to debate. I think we're seeing a couple things here. Uh, first of all, um, you know, activism has gone global. I think anytime you have a big international event, uh, sporting or otherwise, you're, you're probably going to see protests and, and people calling for boycotts. As, as David noted, the, the last World Cup in Russia, the Olympics in, in Beijing, um, and, and then you get to countries that uh, um, have uh, uh, human rights problems. Uh, and in the World Cup and then the Olympics used to be uh, the World Cup in particular used to be hosted in Europe uh, or in Latin America places maybe that, that weren't terribly controversial but now as you spread it around the globe and the whole world is watching and participating um, you're going to get you're going to have a lot of culture classes clashes and questions over human rights um, so yes um, you know we go all the way back to the 36 uh, Olympics in Nazi Germany this has been an issue for a long long time I think it's becoming even more pointed now. Well, there has been some pushback to the criticism being leveled at players who are taking part in the World Cup. This is Jurgen Klopp, who was pressed about the topic last week. Klopp is a former German soccer player and Liverpool's current manager. Look at your body language, how we sit now there. Do you really think that we, that we did enough in the first place? Now making a story of it, now when it's happened, now coming out of the corner and getting now players under pressure, what, what, we, what you will do? With questioning these kind of things, with asking the questions, that's not okay. The thing is organized by other people. And I don't say you let it happen, but we all let it happen. That time, it was everything on the table. Everything was on the table. David, people have talked about the corruption and abuses tied to this event for years. Is it time to have a different conversation that's not so much linked to a specific location for FIFA, but more about the organization itself? Look, FIFA has yeah, clearly had a, a you know really awful, rotten scandals. And the whole international sort of sporting industry, it's not just FIFA, but you know, the International Olympic Committee has had some really serious scandals over the years because there's not just a lot of sort of national pride at stake, but let's be clear, there's a lot of money at stake. And these are also, you know, we we talk about, you know, the honor of sport and the sort of the, the romance of sport, and they have all these kind of clever videos of little kids looking kind of dreamy-eyed at football players. The truth is this is a gigantic corporate the event as well. And, you know, one of the sort of headlines today, you saw Budweiser, one of the sponsors of the games, has been told they can't sell beer uh, after all at the World Cup because Qatar has changed its mind. So these are giant global commercial and sporting television events and different bits of the world, as Greg says, have different values. And so when the global kind of caravan stops in a given place, you're going to get these culture clashes. And I think that is just 
uh, the nature of where we are. But certainly we should we should root out corruption and, and the investigations into FIFA were long overdue. And I think having the World Cup in Qatar is a kind of really a, a holdover from those really bad old days where these very murky deals uh, were how they awarded the, the locations. Well, one last thing before we end. Brittany Greiner. This morning, the Kremlin said it's aiming to secure the release of convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot and a prisoner swap with the U.S. That was reported by the Interfax News Agency. Greg, what should we be watching here? Well, I, I think that uh, that certainly would be an encouraging sign if the Russians are interested in negotiating a deal now. The U.S. went to rather unusual lengths of sort of publicly announcing what they were offering, that they would release, release Victor Boot, a uh, notorious international arms dealer who's serving more than 20 years in the U.S., in exchange for two Americans, Brittany Griner, the basketball player, and Paul Whelan, a uh, former American military guy who was uh, just a frequent visitor to Russia. So I think Vladimir Putin will try to figure out the moment in which he can uh, exact the most uh, uh, greatest return uh, or when a deal would do him the most good. So I I don't think he's doing this out of the kindness of his heart. And we'll see if if, if there's any progress. Um, I, I would not get too overly optimistic at, at this point, but because I think that uh, the, the Russians will try to maximize their leverage. But at, perhaps at some point, they will feel it is in their interest to, to do a deal. Uh, let's hope it's soon. And just a quick sentence or two, I'd love to hear from each of you a story you think deserves more attention than it's gotten this week or something you've been following. David? I think there's some of the discussions at the G20 about rising food prices around the world. We shouldn't forget that there's a lot of people uh, who cannot afford to feed their families at the moment in all kinds of uh, continents, certainly in Africa, uh, the developing world. And that is a really serious crisis made worse uh, by the war in Ukraine. Greg, what about for you? Well, uh, I can't exactly say it's undercovered, but but we'll be watching very closely for Russian missiles uh, coming towards Ukraine and how uh, Ukrainians are coping day by day to get through this very tough winter. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. He covers national security, and he joined us from Kiev in Ukraine. And up late again for us from the Chinese capital, David Rennie. David is Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and host of the nude podcast, Drum Tower. David, Greg, thanks. And before we go, a big congratulations to Jeff Bennett and Amna Navaz. This week, PBS announced they both will take over from Judy Woodruff to anchor the news hour in the new year. They're both the best of the best. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.